Tupelo, Mississippi is the largest city in the northeast region of the state, with a population of around 40,000. In 1934, it became the first city to receive power from the Tennessee Valley Authority. But just two years later, in 1936, the city was ravaged by what remains one of the deadliest tornadoes in American history. The city would later rebuild to become a hub of American furniture manufacturing industry. Today, it is the smallest city in the United States that is the headquarters of more than one bank with over $10 billion in assets. What is probably the most famously known about Tupelo is that it is the birthplace of the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. Like many other cities across the state, Tupelo has that small town feeling. And in the summer of 1986, things were much the same way until the brutal murder of an innocent 18-year-old girl rocked the city to its core. This is Crooked Hospitality, a show all about the crime, legends, and lore of Mississippi's history. I'm your host, Mae Smith, and today I'm going to tell you about the 1986 murder of Amy Clayton. In the summer of 1986, Amy Clayton was an 18-year-old girl who had just graduated from high school in May, and she was looking forward to attending Itawamba Junior College on a cheerleading scholarship in the fall. She lived at home with her parents, Carol and Joe Clayton, along with her two older brothers, Rob and Brad. The Clayton family had spent much of that July taking turns caring for their grandmother who was recovering after a fall. On Thursday, July 31st, that's where Amy was for the day, at her grandmother's house until her mom arrived at 6 to relieve her and stay the night. Amy left her grandmother's around 6.30 that afternoon, and she headed straight home, where she met her brother, Brad. The two went to a nearby gas station and got some soft drinks, and then went back home to cook dinner. Both of her older brothers were on a softball team, and later on that night, they had a game. Their older brother, Rob, arrived home around 7.30 with another teammate, but they were only home for about 30 minutes before they left to go practice for their game. Brad stayed home until around 9 o'clock before he headed out to the softball field. Before leaving the house, he asked Amy if she wanted to go, and she declined, saying that she had planned for a late afternoon jog, which was something she routinely did. Across town, her father, Joe Clayton, was getting off of work. He headed straight to the softball fields, where he planned to watch his sons play. The games ended pretty late that night, so they didn't get home until close to around 11.30. They became immediately worried when they saw that Amy wasn't home. Joe called Amy's mother, Carol, who came home right away and started calling around to Amy's friends, but nobody had spoken with her that afternoon. By 1 a.m., they notified the police that she was missing. They all began searching for her on her usual route that she took running, but they didn't find her or any clues as to where she might be. After a restless night, Joe called his brother, Jerry Lee Clayton, who was the chancery clerk at the time, and told him what was going on. It wasn't long after this phone call that Jerry Lee's phone rang again. 
but this time, it was the police. A local man was taking his morning jog around Legion Lake, about half a mile from Amy's house, when he discovered the body of a deceased female lying close to the water. They needed someone from the family to come see if the body that was found belonged to Amy. When Jerry Lee arrived, he knew immediately that it was his niece, Amy Clayton. As police combed the area surrounding the crime scene, they found her shoes and socks lying near her body. One of the shoelaces had been removed and was used to bind her wrists together. Nearby, they located a blood-soaked white sleeveless t-shirt and a pair of J.C. Penney boxer shorts. Dr. Thomas Bennett, the state medical examiner, performed an autopsy, stating that the time of her death was between 10 p.m. and midnight the previous day. He also noted that she suffered 34 stab wounds and had been sexually assaulted. Additionally, there were bruises from the impact of a blunt object on her head and various other places on her body. After the news reported the crime, officers received descriptions of a suspicious man who had been in the area on the day of Amy's murder. A neighbor of the Claytons claimed to have witnessed seeing the man walking around their home at around 10.30 p.m. on Thursday night. He described this man as being approximately 5 foot 4 with a dark beard and dark hair. He was wearing a headband, a light-colored t-shirt, and dark pants. With this information, he helped develop a composite sketch that was published in the North Mississippi Daily Journal on August the 2nd. So, it wasn't long before police found a person of interest. Randy Bevel was a 30-year-old man from Pontotoc County who was on probation at the time for burglary charges. That July, he had been living on his sister's couch in Tupelo. On the afternoon of July 31st, he called his ex-girlfriend, Iris, whom he had not spoken to for months. Iris declined to answer his calls, and after about four or five attempts, he decided to drive over to her apartment. He parked his truck in the nearby parking lot of Parkway Baptist Church, and then walked to the woods where he could hide out and watch her apartment to see if anybody stopped by. After a while, though, he walked up and started banging on her door, begging to be let in. She refused to open the door, and after nearly 20 minutes, she called the police. And he left before they arrived. He drove off in his truck. But just two days after the crime took place, police had received enough information on Bevel to want to question him. A deputy that was patrolling the county ran into Bevel and told him that he had to come in. Bevel, of course, wanted to know why, but after the deputy reassured him he was not under arrest, Bevel agreed to ride with him to the station. After he began explaining his whereabouts on July 31st, the officers asked him about the disturbance call they received from his ex-girlfriend, Iris. He admitted that he parked his truck at the church by his ex's house and then harassed her, saying that he was angry at the time and wanted to make sure no one else was going over there. The questioning by investigators quickly took a turn when the officers asked Bevel if he had been drinking. Bevel explained that, yeah, he had been. But this, combined with the fact that he had been driving and harassing his ex, meant that he had violated his probation terms. The officers then placed him under arrest. 
While they held him in custody, they searched his truck and discovered that his seat covers had been washed and removed and were laying on the floorboard. The officers then visited Miss Hilda Wilder, who was Bevel's sister, who he had been living with. According to her, on the night of July 31st, he had not come home yet when she went to bed around 10 p.m., but that he was on the couch the next morning when she left for work at 6 a.m. She provided them with a blue sleeveless t-shirt that belonged to Bevel that was the exact style of the white one found at the crime scene. She explained that he also owned a white one identical to it, but she hadn't seen it since Thursday. Later that month, on August 21st, a hearing was held for Bevel for his arrest for violating his probation terms. He was found guilty and then sentenced to five years in prison. Then, just eight days later, on August 29th, evidence was presented to the grand jury and Bevel was indicted for the capital murder, rape, and kidnapping of Amy Clayton. His trial began on March 30th, 1987. Among the evidence that was presented was the blood type found on Amy's body and the t-shirt from the crime scene. The blood type was O, which matched both Amy and Bevel. The Mississippi State Crime Lab's hair and fiber specialist, Joe Andrews, presented his findings on the hair found at the scene. He concluded that the hair found on Amy matched Bevel's pubic hair, and the hair found on both Amy's shirt and the white t-shirt was a match to Bevel's chest hair. Multiple witnesses testified to seeing a man fitting Bevel's description in the area wearing a light-colored shirt and dark pants. One man, who was riding in a friend's truck, witnessed an older man and a younger female having a conversation under a streetlight on the night of the 31st. The clothes he described the female wearing matched the clothes Amy had on that night, and he said that the man had on a light-colored, sleeveless t-shirt that fit the description of the one found at the scene. This young man identified Bevel in court as being the man he saw that night. Another witness who testified was a prisoner who was incarcerated with Bevel at the time of his testimony. He testified that Bevel told him that he had sex with a girl and then killed her. After deliberation, the jury returned a guilty verdict of capital murder and unanimously found that Bevel should suffer the death penalty. Right away, Bevel appealed his conviction, arguing that the evidence used against him in court was insufficient. He specifically targeted the hair analysis findings, which honestly is something that is widely controversial today when used in court. He stated that the blood type O that was found is the most common blood type, and it should not have been used as sufficient evidence tying him to the scene of the crime. Lastly, he argued that the prisoner should not have been able to testify in court. His appeal was successful in reversing his conviction. However, he was tried again and convicted on capital murder charges in 1992. Randy Bevel died in custody at Parchman Prison at just 58 years old in April 2017. The cause of his death is unknown. The murder of Amy Clayton was a senseless, brutal killing of a sweet, innocent young girl who deserved the chance to live her life to the fullest. Amy's mother, Carol Clayton, 
has taken extraordinary steps to help victims' families in the aftermath of a tragedy. Carol's experience inspired her to establish Survival Incorporated to help other victims of a crime. She stated that at the time of her daughter's death in 1986, there were no laws in the books defining victims' rights. The media became their only source of information. Carol, along with the help of a few others, sent a 10-bill package to state legislature in 1986, and seven of those bills passed in 1987. Now, every defense attorney in the state has to have a victim's assistance officer available to the families of crime victims. A victim's assistance officer steps in once a case has made it to court, and they inform the victims and their families of progress in the case, social services needs, and they provide them with other resources that are available. Survival Incorporated provides service as soon as possible to victims, including counseling and, very important, crime scene cleanup. They provide services in 34 counties and collaborate with other groups to serve as many people as they can. That's all for today's episode of Crooked Hospitality. Be sure to follow the show so you can hear the next episode as soon as it's released and leave us a review. I love hearing your feedback and case suggestions. I'll see you next time.